0: Will you do something with me? Will you pray with me this morning that we may be ready and able to hear from the Lord, to hear what he has to say? <coughs> God, you are so good. Lord, even uh, in our sicknesses and even in our illnesses, Lord, you are good. Uh, and you offer grace to us day by day. Lord, I thank you that in your goodness, um, You saw fit to save a sinner such as I. You saw fit to pull me out of my wretched state, to wash me clean, and to make me into a person who is being drawn and uh, formed more into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. Lord, you are holy, and you expect us to obey you and to live for you and to live set-apart lives, to live lives that are like Jesus, that imitate Jesus. Lord, we see that not only in the New Testament, but we see it especially with our text that we've gone over in the last few weeks in the Old Testament. Lord, help us to understand that you did come in flesh that you did come to earth to condescend to man. But Lord, help us not to overhumanize who you are. Help us, Lord, to still wake up every morning, to come to church gathering, to open our Bibles, to pray with the same reverence and the same respect and the same awe that the Israelites felt at Mount Sinai when the cloud and the smoke and the thunder and the lightning covered the, cl- covered the mountain. and the rumblings shook the earth. Lord, that we may always revere you as the great, big, and mighty God of the universe, but may we also receive you as the God who came to earth to save a sinner such as I. And may both lead us to worship. We love you and we praise you We thank you for your Son who gives us life. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It would seem that since we have reached the last of the Ten Commandments that we could sort of move on from those and and not really talk about them in our preaching. But what we find is as we read through the Old Covenant and as we read through the New Covenant that God uses these ten words, these ten commandments to resonate throughout all of Scripture, throughout the lives of every Christian who has ever lived. The Ten Commandments of God are not purposeless. They are not arbitrary or something that we can just look at as a loose guideline to follow in our life. They demand our respect, and our reverence. It's easy for us to get in, it's easy for us to forget where we are, actually, in our 10, because of our 10 studies, we sort of, if you're like me, we started, remember how we started in chapter 19? In chapter 19, what was happening? It was this same image, right? It was the lightning and the thunder, the voice of God coming through the thunder, the cloud, um, the smoke uh, surrounding the mountain. It was the trembling. It was the Israelites in fear. And then we get these Ten Commandments. Now, as we've gone through these Ten Commands, I'll just be honest with you, I've withdrawn my mind from that place. Like, I've been thinking about what God has to say for me. I've been thinking about how I can change my life, work in my life to be more like Jesus. But I've withdrawn my mind from that place. And now we come to the end of chapter 20, and it's sort of the bookend of of, of the context with which God has given His Ten Commandments. It is lightning and thunder and a smoke, a thick smoke that surrounded the mountain and a reverence and an awe, so much so that the Israelites would not even dare come close. They were probably all huddled back here together, away from the mountain because of fear, because of reverence. The end of Exodus 20 brings our minds back to the foot of Mount Sinai, back, where, back to the place where Moses boldly stood before the trembling people. There's so much to learn from chapter 19 and chapter 20 that is woven together by God for our good. Something that I've mentioned before, I think, when we went through chapter 19, (coughs) but uh, it cannot be understated, uh, is found in the appearing of God. God comes to the people in thunder, in lightning, in smoke, and in earth rumblings. He is doing this not because it's the only way he can appear, because in the New Testament we see him come as meek or as gentle as a dove. He has come this way because it's the way he had... He chooses to appear to his people at this point. He is appearing in the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the rumblings to add importance to these ten words and to give a distinct message about about himself and The message is this: He is God. He is the first and the last. He is the same God who is one with Jesus but He is laying down his most important statutes of the Old Covenant and really uh, all throughout time. And he is not going to do this gently or softly to his people. He He comes to them to the point where they are literally shaking in their sandals. That they are afraid to approach the mountain. That they need Moses to intercede. Because they are smart enough to know that if they meet with God, they will surely die. When God appears in the Bible, we need to take heart. But when he appears like this, we need to really listen. What well, we can learn about God, uh, so what then can we learn about, excuse me, that was a question mark, what can we learn about God in the way he is seen in our text today? We learn that he is big, he is mighty. He's not a joke. He is not Santa Claus. He's not playing games. He is not to be messed with. He is not some overweight bearded deity sitting sideways on a throne, bored with humans as gods or God is sort of characterized in comics or uh, comic strips or things like that. He is not disinterested with humans, but personally involved and personally caring about our obedience and our well being even though he is far off he is not far from our needs but he's not our buddy he he's not our best friend he he's not our pal he isn't someone we can have a drink with and as some people do in k-love christian songs he's not our boyfriend or he's not our girlfriend we don't have this weird relationship with God, even through Jesus, that makes Him so close that it could just—we can just treat it flippantly. We can just treat it like He's just any other relationship. If that's what you get from Jesus, you're doing the opposite of the—you're you're getting the opposite of the message that Jesus wanted to give. He is infinite. He is matchless. He is untouchable. He is far off. He is knowable, but distant. He is matchless, unsearchable, inscrutable, and awe-inspiring. He is worthy to be feared. He does not overlook sin or disobedience. He even says this of himself. He is not slack concerning his judgment, as some people consider slackness. Now, granted, we have access to him in different ways than the people that were listening to this first message did because of the work of Jesus. But it doesn't change the person or the characteristics of God. And the problem here that I see is that in an attempt to know God and draw closer to him, we often humanize God. We bring the infinite down to such a small level and try to analyze and dissect him when he is far above our self-ascertaining or whatever you want to say. It is understandable in a sense that we want to humanize God, because after all, Jesus came in the form of flesh. He came as man, and so God humanized himself in a sense. But Jesus, this is vastly important, Jesus didn't come to bring God down to our level, per se. He came to bring us up to God. The church and the world has spent far too long attempting to make God more like humans, more like everyday fallen man, where Jesus says, you want to know God, know me, and then what did he do? He lived a perfect life. He followed the commands of God by... And he glorified God by loving God and loving people. And then he died as a sacrifice. All of these things didn't bring God to man, but brought man to God. I think it's hard to distinguish, but it's important to understand the difference. Isn't this also what we see in the Ten Commands? Isn't it also what we feel when God lists a range of commands to follow. God, through the ten commands, through the clouds and the smoke, through the thunder and the lightning, was not trying to make himself more like people. It's obvious as you see this. If he had wanted to make himself more like people, if he had wanted to humanize himself, he could have easily just walked down the mountain and said, oh, hello guys, I have some rules for you to follow. But he wanted to show that He was unlike us in every way. And if we are to be like Him, it's because He brings us to Him, not because He comes down to our level. We often humanize God. What we should be doing is Revering God. We should be showing the utmost respect and reverence. Our worship should be humble. It should be thoughtful. And only then is it beginning to be God-honoring. The Ten Commands, as you've seen over the last few weeks, the Ten Commandments... Did it make you feel like after you read every command, did you think, oh, I'm closer to God? No, after we read and studied every command, you probably thought, man, I have a lot of work to do. Because the Ten Commandments were not intended to show you how close you are to God. They were intended to show how great and holy God is and how far off we are. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that, and we've talked about it a million times, and we'll talk about it again. How do the Ten Commandments and the way God appears to his people then bring us closer to God? It's, an, it's one thing to say, they, these commands and the way God appears, it's showing us how far off he is. But it's another thing to attack it and say, how do we get to God then? How do these Ten Commandments and the way God appears show us how he brings his people closer to him and not how God is humanized. I have three today, and I want you to sort of write these down. There's a few subpoints. We'll go through them on a Bryce time scale relatively quickly. The first is this. The Ten Commandments and, the appear- and God's appearing bring us closer to God in reverence because they instill in us a healthy fear of God. They instill in us a healthy fear of God. Look at verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the smoking, uh, the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. The reason that God appeared this way and the reason that God established these Ten Commandments is because in us he wanted to establish a healthy fear of who he was, a a healthy fear of his nature. Martin Luther distinguishes two types of fear as he's trying to understand and lay out what God meant, what it means to fear the Lord. The first is a servile fear, servile, S-E-R-V-I-L-E. And the second is a philial fear, F-I-L-I-A-L, F-I-L-I-A-L, fear. Servile is the fear that a slave would have for a wicked master, or the fear a prisoner might have for his torturer or executioner. ill is derived from the Latin word that comes from family. And would more relate to the fear that a child has for his father. Some of you might have seen it a minute ago with me. Uh, Ellie was doing something and it wasn't necessarily bad, but I did this and she stopped. That doesn't happen all the time, but it's really nice when it happens in front of y'all because y'all think it does. (laughs) It's a fear of a family. Maybe a child, uh, the fear that a child would have for a father. He has fear of disappointing or displeasing his father. Not because he is fearful of him in a, in a way that he's worried about abuse or, or even punishment. Because eventually it grows past that. But because he respects him and would hate to disappoint or let him down. The fear of the Lord then is a sense of awe and respect for God because of his majesty and because of his power but also his love and his care. A sense of awe and respect for God because of his majesty, because of his power, and also because of his love and care. A concern not only for the approval of God, but also to not, take, to not make light of all of the big things that make him God. We are commanded all throughout the Old Testament to fear the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then in Philippians, we are told to work out our salvation with what? Fear and trembling. In Hebrews, we are told that God is a consuming fire to be worshipped in reverence and awe. This is, the, this is a fear of who God is and what he can and will do. But this is not a servile fear that flinches every time we make a mistake or worries that God will throw us away because of our sin. This is a ill fear that comes from being a child to a larger-than-life figure who will punish us in order to keep us and will not cast us out. This is a fear that calls us to draw that causes us to draw closer to God than to push him away. After all, the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear. This is a fear that is understood within the context of the motivations of God's will. That is his deep and unending love for us. Moses seems to be thinking about these two types of fear also, or he's schizophrenic. Moses says in verse 20, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. These words used in here for the word fear in verse 20, they're both the same word. yah Ray. It's the same word. There's no distinguishing here. Fear can be something that controls you and destroys you or it can be something that motivates you and refines you. Fear is strange because two people can look at the same thing and fear in two different ways. I've told you about my friend Billy before. Billy was six foot eight and 385 pounds in the first grade. None of that's true, but it felt like it. It felt like it. And Billy was not a bully. Billy was a defender of people. I'm not sure that I would have gotten into much trouble anyway, but Billy was around to make sure it didn't happen. Some looked at Billy with fear and trembling, knowing that if they messed with Billy, if they were on the wrong side of Billy, they knew what was going to happen to them. They were going to get beat up or set on or something. But I looked at Billy with a healthy fear because I knew He had my back. I knew we were on the same team. And I worried more about what he might do to others than what he would do to me. The fear from some caused them to hate Billy. But the fear I had for Billy caused me to love him and to be closer to him and to remember him 30 years later. Fear is a great motivator. And the right fear is one of the greatest motivators for Christians. We're led by fear in in many things, right? We don't want to die early, so what do we do? We eat more healthy. We exercise. We go to the doctor. We take medicine. We take care of ourselves. We don't drink this or smoke that. Or maybe we're fearful of guns, so we... We take safety classes or we go and we practice shooting or handling them and taking them apart and we keep a lock on them. We, we have fear in our lives that motivates us, that is healthy. We fear God in similar ways. We look at His majesty and His sovereign power. We see that there is none like Him and we fear Him. Why is that? Moses says, don't fear God in a servile way. Don't fear God in a servile way, thinking that he's come to just abuse you. Thinking that he's come to just punish you because you've done wrong. But if you're going to fear God, fear him knowing that if you respect and you revere him, that it will cause you to obey him. <coughs> It causes us to respect God and not bring Him down to our level when He scorns us. When He punishes us. To place God in reverence with love and the respect that He deserves is one of the most honorable things that a Christian can do. I've told you before, and it may make you uncomfortable, but I don't care. But I want my children to fear me. I want them to be in awe of my power, to know that if I say something, I mean it. I want them to know that without fail, I will punish them in a strong way every time they disrespect authority, every time, without fail. Whether it's me or their mom or close authority figures, family, or even you guys, even church family. It may come across as harsh sometimes to you, but I will punish more strongly for my kids disobeying authority than for breaking social rules. So if my kids in nursery say poopy face or they punch one of the other kids, I'm sorry, we're still working on that. That's a part of it, okay? Respecting others and stuff like that. Believe it or not, I'm teaching that. But... It's more important to me, and personally, I lean harder into respecting authority, honoring their mother, honoring their father, than anything else. But I don't just leave it for them at, you will respect me or I will punish you. Every time I punish one of my children severely enough, we have a long talk about why. Usually something like this. God, put your mommy and daddy over you. We are your authority. And for right now, we make the decisions and we are your bosses. We are teaching you this way so that one day you can be successful on your own. I hate doing this to you. I don't like spanking you or I don't like whatever it may be. We love you. But because I love you, I need you to know that you cannot treat your mommy this way or you cannot treat your daddy this way, or whoever it may be. Yes, I think my children fear me. And sometimes even me, who I feel pretty confident about my parenting style, sometimes I look at my children and I'm like, am I doing this wrong? You know, I mean, am I making, do they fear me so much that they're going to resent me? Like, I have those thoughts in my mind, even as confident as I am about my parenting style. But I will bet you right now, if you ask them who their favorite people in the world were, they wouldn't list five other names beside me before me. They would definitely list their mommy before me and probably Bosie and Pocky, but they wouldn't list five other people before me. So I consider that a win at this point. I think my children fear me, but I think that they love me. And I bet when they're old enough to make the correlation... They will respect me in a different way and see on some level why I did the things I did when they were younger. I remember like it was yesterday, I had a moment like that with my father where I thought, I went from thinking, man, he was so hard on me. He punished me way more than he should have to, man, he did not punish me enough. He should have, been, <coughs> he should have done a lot more. That type of maturity, friends, can be used to illustrate spiritual maturity. As we grow, we see that all things work together for our good. That it really does hurt our Father more than it does hurt us. That if God puts a barrier, it isn't to keep us from enjoying life, it's to keep us from ruining it. That His plans and ways are far above ours, so we should fear him enough to trust him and trust him enough to love him and while we wait for him to reveal his truth to what and while we wait, we, uh, we trust him to reveal his truth in what he's doing. <clears throat> Even though it's great to know God and, in a close and personal and present sort of humanistic sort of way, as we mature as a Christian, it's much more important that we know God as the awe-inspiring singular, one and only God of the universe who has the ability to give life. He has the ability, ability to take it away. And we follow him in reverence and awe and a healthy fear. Because in the end, a healthy fear will allow us to understand that every time God scorned us, every time God disciplined us, it was for our good and not because he hates us or not because he's holding us back. What's the second thing that the Ten Commandments and the appearing of God at Zion reveals to us? The Ten Commandments and God's appearing bring us closer to God in reverence because they reveal our need for a mediator. They reveal our need for a mediator. Verse 19, And said to Moses, You speak to us. The people said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. The people stood far off while Moses drew to the thick darkness where God was. (coughs) As I was reading this, it struck me as kind of funny. The people say, Moses, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us. Because if God speaks to us, we'll die. All right, Moses, go ahead up there. Mo- the people were willing to sacrifice Moses. They knew that God would mean that this kind of meeting with God would lead to death. They weren't willing to sacrifice themselves, but they were willing to sacrifice Moses. It's like checking the noise out in the house when you're a kid, and you say, "What was that? I don't know. You go find out." Usually, the people are willing to make someone else a sacrifice. But the people knew they needed God. They they could see where he was, but they were out of his league when it came to meeting him. They needed a mediator. Moses was the man. He He stepped back onto the mountain, and he went to the place where God was. We've discussed this before, but... What did the Ten Commandments tell them that forced them to call upon a mediator? Why did they and do we need a mediator? This is sort of a sub-point under that. We need a, under point two. We need a mediator because of our sin and the depth of our sin. We need a mediator because of the sin and the depth of our sin. They knew that they could not meet with God and live because God was holy and they were not. Just like anyone else, we cannot meet with God and live because God is holy and we are not. We need a mediator because of the sin in our lives and the depth of that sin. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of breaking it all. Has become guilty of all of it. You keep the whole law but you break it in one point and you are guilty of all. Of it. You may have experienced that over the last few weeks of the Ten Commandment studies. You probably came into the studies thinking your nose was pretty clean. And then at the end of it, after the tenth, you were like uh, Paul when he says, I am the chief of all sinners. Because what God's word does is it reveals to us our sin. What the law does to us, it reveals our sin and the depth of it it shows our inability to meet with god and our need for a mediator our sin and the depth of our sin make it necessary to have someone stand in our place friends we need a mediator because the accumulative righteousness of the entire world that has ever ever existed is not enough to purchase our way into heaven if we gathered all the righteousness of every righteous man that ever existed, all the goodness, it's not enough for God's perfect standard. Because if we've kept, if we've broken, if we've kept every law but we've broken one, we are responsible for all of it. All the righteousness in the world is not enough to cover one man's depravity. Not only do we not contain within ourselves enough righteousness, but We cannot obtain it. And so the second idea is we need a mediator because of our inability to keep the whole law. We cannot obtain the righteousness of God on our own. We need a mediator because of our inability to keep the whole law. The Lord in his might and strength gave the law in order that it might be kept. And it wasn't a request, but it was a command to keep the law perfectly. And as we have done over the last few weeks, as we break down... Uh, the whole law, we can see that it is an impossible task to keep the whole law perfectly. But it was God's standard. It was God's command. We cannot keep the whole law. We fail daily even to keep part of the law. But God did not leave us with just Moses as our mediator. He did not leave us with an imperfect mediator or without a mediator, but he gave us the perfect mediator who came to earth not to bring God to man, but to bring man to God. Jesus is the perfect mediator, keeping the whole law for himself and also for Us, the sin that entered the world through Adam, made it impossible for us to keep the whole law. But through the great mediator, things would be different. Whereas the sin commuted to us by Adam made it impossible to keep the law, the righteousness commuted to us by Jesus made us righteous in the sight of God. Romans 3:19 through 22 speaks of this. Now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God for by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. Our great mediator. And then we see again about our great mediator in 1 Timothy 2, 5-6. For there is, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Jesus is that mediator that offered a sacrifice instead of sacrifices for his people. Jesus is the only one who could step in where God is on our behalf for his people. Hebrews 3, 3 says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house, excuse me, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. A mediator better than Moses, who offered his people more than Moses had to offer. Hebrews 8 6 testifies to this. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, excuse me, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Friends, our sin, the depth of it, our inability to be righteous on our own, causes us to need a mediator. And Jesus steps into our place. We need to fear God because of his power and his might, because of our inability and because of his willingness to send his son to die knowing all of that. We need a mediator. The way God appears here, the way the commands are given, show us that we need a mediator. And then lastly, the Ten Commandments and God's appearing bring us closer to God in reverence because we go to God on His terms. We go to God on His terms. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifices on it, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, it shall not be built. You shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by the steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed. I'm not going to focus much on 26, but later on, uh, in time, they actually made. You know, these people weren't known for wearing underwear. So later on in time, they actually made undergarments for the priest to be able to keep this command. But I'm not going to focus mostly on that. I want to focus on coming to God on his terms. I was reading this passage, and I was thinking about it long and hard to give you something from it. And at face value, it just seems like it's a few more rules. But as I was thinking and studying, it made me happy to think about Vintage Church and the way we operate. God at Mount Sinai was the first to approve the way we operate at Vintage Church. I want you to know that. He prescribed a way for his people to meet God with on a, and from now into the foreseeable future on a vintage, sort of earthy, sort of organic way. He gives them three commands as to how to meet with him and how he will meet with them. And I want to give them to you today because they're important. Three things that will help us to see how God wants to meet with his people. The first thing he says is, don't make this worship fancy and ornate. Don't make this worship fancy and ornate. And something changed over time because they built the temple, and there was more gold in the temple probably than, you know, that was in Fort Knox. And and they, they did make things sort of fancy and ornate. But this is what God says to them. He says, pile up some dirt and stack some stones and worship me. I don't want it to be those hewn stones. I don't want you to take a chisel to it. Okay? I don't want it to look ornate. I don't want it to look super special. I want you to pile up some dirt from the earth and I want you to surround it with stones. And I don't want you to make little things of silver and gold. I want you to make it earthy. I want you to make it natural. I want you to make it organic. Friends, I don't know if this directly relates to us today, but I think it kind of does. I feel like the church has missed the mark. The the local church has missed the mark on reaching God at an organic level. Because he is God and we revere him, we try to meet God in a way that we think would be appropriate. It's another way of humanizing God. I really like this type of music. So if I set the tune to Christian words, God must also like this kind of music. I really like when the lights are off and, the, and there's stage lights and maybe there's some, some other things set in the ambiance. I really like that. So if I like that, then God must like that. It must be approved by God. I like this type of music. I like that type of music. I like this type of preaching. I like that type of preaching. If I like it, then it must be what God approves. But what God approves is this, friends. God approves the simplistic. God approves the person that comes to him with clean hands and a pure heart. And if it means taking away chairs and drums and guitars and keyboards, if it means taking away a building to meet with God in that way, he would rather us meet with him in that way than meet with him him in a way that we have prescribed that he would like. Don't make this worship fancy and ornate. (coughs) He says another thing, don't worship me like The world worships their gods. Although the hewn stones would have made a more attractive altar, a more ornate altar, the method of building that altar would have matched more of what the pagans were doing than what God required. The Lord is saying, I want my altar to be different than theirs. I want it to be simple. After all, isn't what is on the altar... And isn't who is being praised at the altar more important than the altar itself? Don't worship me like the world worships their gods, friends. I'm telling you, man, this could have been a this could have been a whole sermon because churches, the local church, has done so much to look like the world has done so much to build altars of hewn stone that we have missed the point of worship in general. Don't worship me like the world worships their gods. Then he says this, Don't worship me with images but worship me in the way I came to you. Look at verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. Friends of the Lord is not cautioning against polytheism here. He is prescribing people a way to meet with God. And Jesus confirmed this later in the New Testament when he said there will be a time where you will neither worship on that mountain or this mountain, but true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Friends, we will not... A lot of the ways we express our love for God will come forth in a physical manner, but we are not intended to worship God physically. We are intended to worship God in the way that He first came to us. You saw the way I talked to you, He said. You saw the might and the power that I gave you. So what does it mean to worship God in the way He came to us? It means to worship God in reverence and in awe and in honor of who He is. I will tell you the most frustrating thing as a pastor and I know that it's hard, I know that it's difficult, but the most frustrating thing as a pastor is when he sees his congregation take this time or any other time where we meet with God so flippantly. And in the past, I haven't had the ability to express my feelings very well in that. So what I would do is I would uh, I would quit on people, or I would, I would say, "Do you even care?" Or, or just, you know, I still do that some because I think it's necessary. But I would quit on people. But now I see it differently. Now I see that we need people more than ever to come alongside each other, to not quit each other, and to show each other exactly what it's like to to meet with God in reverence, in fear and in awe. And instead of tossing people away when they don't meet that standard, we come alongside them and lift them up and help them. Because at one point, you too were the person that needed the hand up. At one one point, you were the person that was profaning the worship of God. And if that person is a believer, you can best bet that at some point, maybe not soon, but at some time, they will repent and trust and worship God in the way that he has prescribed. Friends, our church service draws us, to, draws us to God, but only if the worshiper is participating in a spiritual way, not just going through the motions. Scripture reading and prayer can draw us to God, but if they are rote and mundane, we will be left Wanting. All of those things start at a spiritual level and not at a practical level. God's terms are that we worship Him in spirit and in truth. So what do we do to worship God in the right way? What do we do? Maybe you find yourself not knowing or not understanding. I think we do what we've had to do over these last few weeks going through the Ten Commandment studies. We constantly examine the motives behind every Christian act. Friends, I will tell you, analytical people get a head start on you in this. Because they're constantly analyzing anyway. But we must constantly analyze and constantly see if our actions are honoring Christ or if we're just going through the motions. Another thing we must constantly do is pray that God would make our motives pure and our determination strong. That our motives to follow Him would be pure and our determination strong. Another thing, never take lightly any act designed to meet with God. Whether it be church gathering or Bible study or prayer or a conference or just regular Bible reading, don't take lightly any act designed to meet with God. Friends, true worship is drawing near to God. Which seems like a task when it's the very voice of God that you fear. But God has made a provision for you. He has made a provision for me to draw close to him. A cleft in the rock. A cornerstone to stand on. For right worship and a right approach to God ultimately and really first we must trust in Jesus. You cannot trust in yourself. You cannot trust in your strength or your power or your might to become more like God. You must sacrifice those feelings of self-worth and independence. You must sacrifice those feelings of needing to do in order to earn God's favor, and you must trust in the work that Jesus has done. When we Receive the righteousness of God when we receive the love of God when we when we receive this salvation, then comes obedience to his will, then comes reverence and worship, then comes right living. pray with me today, God, you are good, Lord, we trust you, God we know that if we have any hope of meeting with you, if we have any hope of knowing you that it's only through the blood of Jesus Christ, our great mediator, God, that you would show yourself to us daily, that you would reveal your will to us (coughs) so that we might know you more as we come to this conclusion of our time today where we spend time responding to you, Lord, help us as another act of reverence, as another act of holy obedience to take this bread and this cup in remembrance of what you've done for us. But not only what you did for us at the cross, but what your blood and your body being broken and poured out mean to us in our life today. Sanctification. Closeness. A deep relationship with you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. We pray that you would just be honored by our lives. Be honored by our sacrifice. Be honored by our reverence. Be honored by our all.